My name is Matthew Nanez, and this is our greatest sport. We are going to go through the history of our greatest sport, professional wrestling. We'll also go through the latest WWE pay-per-views as they come out for all the detailed analysis you want and deserve. And we're not going to waste any time. We're going to get to it right away from Starcade 83, a flair for the gold. Starcade 83 was in Greensboro, North Carolina. It was put on by the NWA, not the blanks with attitudes, but the National Wrestling Alliance. There was 16,000 in attendance, and the main event is Harley Race and Ric Flair, thus Flair from the gold, in a cage match for the title. Now, it's a pretty big deal to have a whole pay-per-view named after the main event. But before then, before we talk about that match, we have some other matches to talk through through the card and break down for you. So let's get to it. No question about it, we're seeing a brand new wave of professional wrestling. Tonight, I think, uh, marks the night indeed. We see uh, Paul Jones out there with the uh, two masked assassins. They'll be taking on Rufus R. Jones and uh, the... Uh, uh, Absolutely. Gordon, the assassins, managed by Paul Jones and, of course, Rufus R. Freight Train Jones, who is our Mid-Atlantic champ, and Bugsy McGraw, who is always very unpredictable in the ring. You never know what Bugsy's going to do, particularly now against a pair like the Mask Assassins. The first match we're going to talk about is the Assassins with Paul, uh, their manager, Paul Jones, versus Ruf Rufus R. Freight Train Jones and Bugsy McGraw. And so you're going to hear some other voices pop through uh, every, every now and again. And it's the announcers, Bob Cottle and Gordon Sully. So first, let's introduce the Assassins. So they're masked men. We, we have no idea what they look like underneath. But one way we can tell them apart is they have different body types. One is fat. And the others, the others kind of got some muscle to them. But these guys, if we are to believe who they are, these guys are assassins. So of course they're masked, right? You don't want to, you don't want to get in trouble with the the police if you reveal yourself to be an assassin. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna get you for something. So it's a good thing that they're masked, right? And they go by assassin one and assassin two, and then you've got the other team. Uh, across from them. So it's Rufus R. Freight Train Jones. He's the Mid-Atlantic champion at this time. And they just put him on a team with Bugsy McGraw. So if you're, if you're watching, then you're looking at Bugsy McGraw. And he's a very special man. So let's introduce Bugsy McGraw. So to me, he's like if he was your high school science teacher. And he wrestled and kicked ass on the weekends. So this guy is is crazy. Uh, he's unhinged, and so he's he's really unorthodox in his wrestling style. To me, he reminds me of like a hacksaw Jim Duggan, but just a little bit more unhinged, a little bit more unglued. And so the announced team, Cottle and, and Sully, they say he's unpredictable, and you never know what you're going to get from him. And if you're watching, if you're watching this match, he's going pretty crazy. He's going crazy. He's going really crazy. Some better than 15,000 year garden, and they are, they are really with this match. No question about it, and it's uh, Bugsy McGraw, a series of clubbing punches to the sides of the jaw of the assassin, drives him to the canvas, and McGraw now in a bit of a whirling dervish. So the thing that you've got to know about Bugsy, <laughs> Bugsy McGraw, the crowd is into just about everything he does. Anything that he did in this match, the crowd Loved it. So even basic moves like hip tosses just made this crowd go crazy. You know, I don't, I don't know if it's 
1983 factor right. I mean, we, we're living in 2018. You know, sometimes we yawn at uh, suicide dives to the outside. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if hip tosses are just something that a crowd can identify with or get into. But the crowd loved it. But it was really effective against the assassins. And so... You know, and he's not Bugsy McGraw. He's not the most crisp wrestler, and he's not the smartest wrestler either. And we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But he's still effective. But but to me, the best part in the whole match is the scooting dance he does. He goes around in circles and he scoots after a series of punches and, and knocks one of the assassins to the ground. He does this crazy little knee thing. Uh, I don't know, like Dusty Rhodes does it, and also Rufus R. Jones does it too. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if it's uh, the time I don't know if that's uh, an intimidation thing that really worked back then uh, but he's I love him I love him a lot and I, I think you 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 I think you will too if you watch this now a little something to consider in in this match so the team of McGraw and Jones they do a really good job you know and initially um they have control of the match, but to, to me, in this match, they don't display the key the key things a ta- team needs to do to stay competitive. And so, I mean, they might have one of the assassins in the corner, but then they just kind of allow one of them to to tag in and out at will when they have control. And so, and like I said, Rufus R. Jones, like, I mean, he's... He's going crazy too, you know, when he's when he's hitting uh, one of the assassins with like a two-handed chop thing to the neck, and he does uh, the crazy knee gyrations. But he does a little bit better of a better job than uh, than our man um, Bugsy McGraw. You know, he's a more technical wrestler, and so he does a great job slowing down the pace with with arm bars, with with some holds. And um, but of course, in, in every match, the tide is going to turn a little bit here and there. So uh, for the assassins, for some reason, they keep targeting uh, Rufus's Jones head, but that doesn't affect it. Like, why do they keep doing that? So both teams, they have a little something to to work on and hopefully they worked on in the next matches that they have. Um, and so, like I said, Jones and McGraw, they have control for the majority of the match. But um, they they just didn't have the awareness at the end of the match to know that one of the assassins tagged in. And it really cost them the match. Uh, so the assassins, they aren't that great of a team for being assassins. They're, they're kind of, are they really assassins? Really? You think they'd be a little bit more dangerous? They did win the match, but they did take advantage of Bugsy and Rufus's carelessness and just not in their ring awareness. And so... Uh, You'd figure a pair of assassins would do a better job of being teammates than just two random guys that got together, and it showed. So, congrats to the assassins. Uh, you, you, you got to win. You got to win. Whips the other assassin toward the ropes. High backdrop by uh, Bugsy uh, McGraw, and uh, McGraw up, up into that. Oh, they got him. They got the pin. He got behind him, Gordon, and he tripped him up. situation uh, for Bugsy McGraw and Rufus R. Jones, but in knowing the assassins and watching them compete over the years, I am not surprised. They are clever, they're devious, and they're extremely powerful. And another thing I want to bring up as well, something that bothered me a little bit in this in this match. So the assassins manager, Paul Jones, right, 
he, he didn't really do much in the match. He didn't really bring all that much value within the match. And I think that's the key to being a great manager. So we're going to compare and contrast Paul Jones with uh, the manager in the next match, Gary Hart. Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a tag team match. One fall with a 45-minute time limit. Introducing first, in the corner to my immediate left, from Indianapolis, Indiana, weighing in at 237 pounds, Johnny Weaver! His team partner from the Sunshine State of Florida, weighing in at 216 pounds, Scott McGee! Their opponents, first from Boston, Massachusetts, weighing in at 230 pounds, Kevin Sullivan. And his team partner, accompanied by his manager, trainer, and advisor, Gary Hart, Mark Lewin. Fans, your referee, Sonny Fargo. All right, so we're going to talk about this next match. Kevin Solon and Mark Lewin with manager Gary Hart versus Scott McGee and Johnny Weaver. And so the thing to, to really know about McGee and Weaver is that they're just dudes, right? They're just dudes. So uh, Johnny Weaver, he's a little bit older. And also Mark Loon, he's, he's got to be like 45. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about older men in wrestling. So Weaver and Lewin, to me, they're just like buff dads, buff fathers. When they're in the ring, ring together... Uh, I think their age kind of shows. And so I think like the combined age of these two, uh, Weaver and Lewin, must be like 80, 85. But I have a question. Is there an advantage to being older and competing in the ring? So in this pay-per-view, there's, there's quite a bit of older guys. And I don't mean to harp on this very much. But I think it comes down to experience. And I think we're going to talk about that a lot as well. And so... So when Scott McGee comes out there, he, and especially when he's taking on Lewin, it's pretty stark. It's, the, the, contract, the contrast is pretty stark. And so now I want to talk about the managers. So Paul Jones in the previous match was a non-factor. But here, Hart got involved and won a match for his team. And so what's the role of a manager and what makes a good manager? And so some say the managers can... They, they can book wrestling shows. They can take care of the money aspect. But then you've got guys like Gary Hart who get involved in it essentially win matches for his clients. And then you've got Paul Jones, who is a non-factor. He's not getting in the head of the other competitors in the, in the ring. He's not barking instructions. And see... That's why Gary Hart goes down in history as one of the best in the game. And so, and in the match, Lewin did a great job of keeping McGee away from Weaver as Sullivan distracted the referee. And that's another thing, too, is that is there value to, to the gray lines of morality and cheating? Well, when it comes down to winning a match and getting a victory bonus, I don't know if, I don't know if there's a victory bonus in the end of, at the end of the night. But guys like Sullivan and Lewin do whatever it takes. They, they have quick tags in contrast to uh, the assassins and, and, and uh, 
Rufus R. Jones and Bugsy McGraw. You know, they're they're having quick tags. They're a great tag team. I think they just have a natural ability to just to control the match. Sullivan bringing him into the ring ropes. Johnny Weaver had made the tag. Weaver in the red trunks now has the side headlock on Sullivan. Many people have accused Sullivan of being a druid. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he were. So sometime within the match, one of the announcers, I believe it's Gordon Sully, he, he's saying that Sullivan was accused of being a druid. There's there's nothing in the match here that would suggest otherwise. So he might have a longer history of either some demon worship or, or whatever like that. But there's no real evidence here in this match. But another thing to notice as well is that, that he's... Sullivan, he's a stocky bro, but he he is fierce and he gets after his opponent his opponents. And also Mark Lewin, like I said, for being an old man, he is ripped, he is buff, and he takes control in this match. That was a tough break for uh, Scott McGee, and he does need to get over and tag up with Johnny Weaver. All right, but watch Lewin and Sullivan right here. They're working together, and they're tagging in and out, and they're going to keep a fresh man in the ring if they can. And they want to keep McGee there too, Gordon. No question about that. If they can tire him out, if they can keep him from getting over to his own corner and tagging up, uh, as long as they stay refreshed, why uh, they're going to have uh, a lot of things going their way. And Scott McGee is beginning to find that out right now. So, the end of the match, Gary Hart takes the arm of Weaver, Mark Lewin, gets on the top rope and jumps down right on to Johnny Weaver's uh, elbow and shoulder area and gets the one, two, three. And so obviously McGee sees this all happen. He's apoplectic. He's beside himself, but Gary Hart comes in, pulls something out and just goes after McGee. And so I don't know if it's a knife, but Angela Mosca, he comes in, he's going to be a special referee later. But he sees what's happening, the injustice that's happening, and tries to stop it. But he gets he, he gets cut, too, on, on his arm. And so, McGee, he's bleeding like a stuck pig. He looks horrible. Two has been lacerated. Mosca has been lacerated in the arm, no question about it. Scott McGee, uh, the severe laceration of the forehead. And it is... Uh, Kevin Sullivan and Mark Lewin continuing to punish. And, and Gary Hart is saying, give him more and give him more. Uh, Gordon right here, really uncalled for. Fans, this is just, it's wild in the ring and there's no way to get order restored at this point. They have gone wild. Here's Mosca in, now goes Lewin out of the ring. I'll guarantee you that Mosca will restore order if nobody else can. And uh, even though he was uh, caught on the arm with that uh, foreign object, whatever it was, it was sufficient to uh, severely lacerate Scott McGee and also uh, Angelo Mosca and uh, a bad, bad situation here, no question about it. But uh, thankfully, uh, uh, Angelo Mosca, sometimes known as King Kong Mosca, was on hand. All right, and here is Mosca now, and Johnny Weaver is there trying to administer to Scott McGee out near the center of the ring. And he is in a bad way after being attacked by Lewin and Sullivan with that object. And I talked about the gray areas of morality. Well, this, this was just flat out evil and so why would a wrestler and manager with such bankrupt morals be allowed to wrestle where is the sportsmanship this 
is a is a physical match. And I know sometimes like in basketball, you know, things get heated, people act in the moment, and they they might do something stupid. And that's and that's forgivable. Sometimes, you know, things happen. But this is it it's inexcusable and there's no place for it in wrestling. There's none. On any given day, the last place on earth that I would want to be would be Greensboro, North Carolina, facing the situation that I've got to face tonight. But I've been sitting around here talking with a few of my friends that are knowledgeable about Ric Flair. They know his shortcomings. They have been around him for a number of months now, and I'm getting a little bit of insight on what has been happening to Ric Flair in the last few weeks. And please believe me, tonight, Flair, I know what your shortcomings are. I know where you hurt. And I'm going after each and every one of those spots. So now we get into a really quick interview uh, with Harley Race with Tony Schiavone. And it's just Harley, Harley Race and Greg Valentine just hanging out. And Harley Race... Craps all over being in Greensboro, but he looks great. He looks like he's confident and, and he knows what he's doing. And and he's the veteran here and he knows Flair's weaknesses. And his friends like Greg Valentine, they're scouting for him. And, and to me, this is smart. This, this is how you play the game. And Harley Race is one of the best to do it. Let's go to the next match. Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Introducing first in the corner to my left, from Puerto Rico, weighing in at 226 pounds, Carlos Colon. And his opponent from the Sudan, weighing in at 400 pounds, Abdullah the Butcher. So the next match we're talking about is Abdullah the Butcher versus Carlos Colon. And these two, these guys are legends. Carlos Colon is a legendary wrestler from Puerto Rico. And then you got Abdullah, and he's from Sudan. And these two, they go at it. And so we have the announcer saying that this match was banned from Puerto Rico. This is how dangerous this match is and I think uh, you know whatever promoter in Puerto Rico they just knew they took a look at Abdullah in his body of work in Carlos Colon who who can get down uh, himself and it's a good thing that Jim Crockett got this match because this match is just a doozy you're with this match you're not going to get much technical wrestling you're going to get a bloodbath and this is what it was and all you have to do really is just take a look at Abdullah. And Carlos's forehead to know that these guys don't mess around. If you see the, if you're not familiar, those little lines are all those on their forehead. Those lines on their forehead, those are scars from when they're bleeding. And so these guys are hardcore before ECW even came around. And so almost right away, Abdullah grabs an object from his pants and just jabs it right into Carlos's head. And this is just par for the course. And, and another thing is, too, is Abdullah's a big boy. So he's probably about, I, mean, I didn't catch you know, the introduction, but he's about, about like 400 pounds. But like I said, Carlos isn't afraid to get crazy either. And so he gets it 
and starts going after Abdullah with it. And this it's a bloody mess, this match. And uh, Carlos is wearing this uh, white singlet and blood is just all over the place. And it's practically near murder. Pulling the count and it is Abdullah the Butcher. I think he was biting on him right there now, Gordon. Galone has turned the tables on this one, though. Oh, he's, he's got an object in his hand. I'm sure that that was the uh, object that was surreptitiously uh, slipped out of the trunks of uh, Abdullah the Butcher. He used it. That's exactly right. That's where he got it, Gordon. He got the object away from Abdullah. And now he's going he's to fight fire with fire. He's biting on Abdullah. Listen to the crowd. They love it. He's got Abdullah hurt. He's got him cut now, Gordon. Now, like I said, this match doesn't have much technicality to it. Uh, Carlos Colon attempts a figure four leg lock. I don't, I mean, you guys, you're bleeding. Just punch the crap out of each other. I don't know what he's doing putting a figure four leg lock on. But is, is there a place for this kind of match in a competitive sense? I mean, as, as, a, as a part of wrestling, you know, just seeing how crazy you can get and how close you can get to killing someone, uh, you know. But anyway, uh, Abdullah elbows the ref. The ref is down. But did the ref matter much anyway other than counting the one, two, three? Well, from what we see, Carlos Colon put on the figure four. And then Hugo Sinanovich, I don't know where he came from. I don't know who he is. But he came in hit Carlos Colon over the head with an object. We don't know what kind of, it looked like it was like a sock with something, like some, like a, a bocce ball in a sock and hit him over the head. Abdullah pinned him for the one, two, three. And this match, this bloody, bloody match was over. And this is, if this is your kind of thing, you'll love this match, but it was short, quick, lots of blood, not that very competitive from a tech, technical aspect. And the match was over. Okay, fans, we're back in the dressing room, and it, it really isn't a pleasant sight here. Angelo Mosca and Angelo, you got that uh, World's Tag Team Championship match that you are supposed to be a referee in. The question is now, can you, can you referee in that match? If I had one arm, I would referee this match. That boy that I saw out there tonight almost brought tears to my eyes. I saw that crimson red. It reminded me of a 21-year-old boy called my son. So this is my what-the-crap moment of the night. So you've got Angela Mosca, who's upset at what happened to him and uh, McGee. And he's mad, of course. Of course he's mad. He's mad that someone as young as McGee would get hurt as bad as this. Well, the camera pans out, and McGee is just sitting there bleeding like crazy, even crazier than he was after the match. Someone clean him up. He is bleeding. He needs to take a shower. Take him to the ER now. Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match, tag team match with a 45-minute time limit. Introducing first in the corner to my immediate left, from the state of Oklahoma, weighing in at 260 pounds, Chief Wahoo McDaniel. His team partner from Mescalera, New Mexico, weighing in at 230 pounds, Mark Youngblood. And their opponents from Florida, weighing in at 235 pounds, 
Nick Slater. And his team partner from Kansas City, Missouri, weighing in at 238 pounds, Bob Orton Jr. So the next match we're going to talk about is Cowboy Bob Orton and Dick Slater versus Chief Wahoo McDaniel and Mark Youngblood. So three out of four guys in this match are legends. So we've got Bob, Ar Bob Orton. He's Randy Orton's father. And so this won't be the last time we see Bob Orton or Randy Orton. He's going to come much later. Um, you'll, you'll see him. And then you've got Dick Slater. And so basically Dick Slater, his thing is he's just always drunk. It seems like he's drunk no matter where he goes. And so and Chief Wahoo McDaniel, another great legend, uh, great Native American wrestler. And so Mark Youngblood. He's kind of in a man's world in this match. Another thing, like I was talking about before, you know, at this point in 1983, it seems like the older wrestler you are, the more experience you have, there's a lot of value in that. And so Mark Youngblood, he's a young guy. He's going to get against some men. You know, he's easily got the least experience in the ring, and it shows in this match. Well, I think right now they're both trying to refigure their strategy. They may have come in just a bit overconfident. They may have thought that uh, Youngblood's uh, inexperience uh, may have served him in bad stead, but I think they're beginning to find out differently. It was obviously uh, a serious discussion going on between Slater and Orton, and it's Orton now and uh, changing the tempo of things. So it is, they're trying to, uh, if you can, uh, Stop the momentum. They may have done it here. Uh, I think he, he did. He had made the tag to Slater when he went into the ropes. Back with that backbreaker again, and now that elbow. Now Youngblood. He's in bad trouble now. And so this match to me is just a master class of tag team wrestling from Cowboy Bob Orton and Dick Slater. They're, they're working the referee. Again, they're blurring the lines of morality here and cheating, but they're doing it with great success and so there's a moment where Youngblood sends one of them over the over the top rope in and in, in the NWA that is considered a disqualification so it's really up to the up to the referee at that point to rule whether or not it was accidental or purposeful so if it's purposeful that Youngblood and McDaniel would have been disqualified right there and there and so the ref ruled it as accidental but Orton and Slater just working the referee and trying to get any advantage that they can, uh, just appealing to the referee. And so why should this rule be enforced in the first place, by the way? I think back then they really wanted to keep the wrestlers safe. It's a, it's a long way from the top rope to the floor. And but But wrestling, it's dangerous. It's just one of those things that's just going to happen. And so you, you don't see that rule enforced these days in the WWE. And another thing I want to talk about is Cowboy Bob Orton's backbreaker. And just him and Slater's tag team wrestling as well. So there's a beautiful moment of tag team wrestling. Where Orton does a backbreaker to Youngblood. And Slater is waiting to jump off the top rope to execute an elbow. Just great, great tag team wrestling. Uh, the first match with Assassins, not great tag team wrestling, but we see some great stuff from this match and and the, the Kevin Sullivan tag match. And so 
Orton and Slater's experience comes into play quite a bit in this match, like I was talking about. And so, Youngblood gets sent out of the ring. And there's so many times where they cut off the ring in half to make it impossible for Youngblood to tag McDaniel. And then whenever Youngblood does start getting an advantage, he does not take advantage and tag McDaniel. He finds himself within the the jaws of Orton and Slater. Rookie mistake, his inexperience shows. And another thing, McDaniel comes in, right? And he cleans house, but he doesn't cut off the ring. He allows Orton and Slater to regroup and compose themselves. And also, Orton and Slater, they, again, like I said, they do an exquisite job at bending the rules and taking advantage of young blood on the outside. So they they un- basically impale him on the barrier. It was brutal. Right there, you could see young blood kicking, flailing, trying to get out of it. Double teamed again. He's set up on that top turnbuckle in that corner. Watch Orton now in the corner here, Gordon. All right, Orton has very much has things very much under control here. And you uh, don't get up from that. Three. And unfortunately, Wahoo McDaniel's just a shade late as he tried to come in and uh, save Mark Kimblood. Wahoo battle going on between them now. Wahoo desperately tried to get in, and as you say, he was just a, a hair late. He tried as hard as he could to jump and dive in to save his partner, but it was just too late. So the ending of this match results in Youngblood taking uh, a superplex, which is Cowboy Bob Orton's finisher, off the top rope. And Wahoo, he tries to get in and break the break the pin, but he's too little, too late. And so, so it counts for a one, two, three pin for the win for Orton and Slater. But, you know, sometimes you just have to take a loss. So McDaniel, he starts throwing fists at Orton and Slater. And so, but in my mind, he gets what's coming to him um, with the beat down he gets. Um, I mean, I'm not advocating for being a sore winner but don't be a sore loser take care of young blood make sure he's okay um and so it, it results in a beat down from Slade and orton but something something funny happened here i don't know if you guys if you guys caught this and so orton you know after you know taking down mcdaniel takes his arm to the outside of the ring for slater to jump off the top rope to the outside to jump on McDaniel's arm. I don't know. Like I said, Slater might be drunk, but he doesn't jump off. He, he, I don't I don't know if he's afraid of heights, but he, he he's scared or something. He just comes down and then jumps off the stairs. And so so yeah, he walks he walks down and jumps off the steps and said and said, I just thought that was hilarious. And so Hats off to Bob Orton and Slater for winning this match and, and really utilizing some excellent tag team skills to get the win. Well, we're back in the dressing room with, and I'm sure I don't have to introduce these men, Nature Boy Ric Flair, former heavyweight champion, and, uh, of course, uh, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood here with us. Rick, I've been over in Harley's dressing room, Harley Race's dressing room. He's been talking to his friends, he says, and he, he says he has something prepared, and I was wondering what you think of that. Well, I hope that he is prepared for the match of a lifetime because <clears throat> myself... Rick Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, we sit here. We know that in a very few moments, we're going to be climbing into that ring with all the marbles on the line. 
I've prepared myself as hard mentally and physically as I can prepare myself. I'm ready for anything, and I want to take this opportunity in front of all these wonderful people who have supported us to wish Jay Youngblood and Rick Steamboat all the luck in the world. I know they've helped me. This is our night, and we're not going to let anybody down. So this interview with Tony Schiavone marks really one of the only times in my life that I've seen Ric Flair not talking about women or booze or clothes. He's focused on this match with Harley Race. And then from this, we get to uh, a Dusty Rhodes interview in the crowd. There's some super unfortunate audio uh, mishaps in that interview and we don't we don't we barely get a word that he's saying but we'll we'll check in on dusty Rhodes later on the night let's get to the next match ladies and gentlemen our next event of the evening is a one fall match with a 60 minute time limit the first 15 minutes of this match the nwa television title will be on the line against the mask of charlie brown introducing first from out of town at 242 pounds, Charlie Brown! And now, the NWA television champion, accompanied by his manager, trainer, and advisor, Gary Hart, weighing in at 235 pounds, from Singapore, the great Kabuki! So this next match is my favorite of the night. It is Charlie Brown from out of town versus the great Kabuki with Gary Hart. And we've saw, we saw, you've seen Gary Hart earlier in the night, but this is a mask versus title match for the TV title. And so, like I said, Charlie Brown is from out of town. He's a crazed masked man with a crazy blonde beard. We don't know anything about him, but from what we learn in this broadcast, that Kabuki has a suspicion. He has a suspicion that it's Johnny Valiant under the mask. And it's not said in, in the in the broadcast, but I have a feeling that Johnny Valiant is not supposed to be there. So take that in consideration. That's why he wants a mask to find out whether or not if it's truly Johnny Valiant. And so here's a little bit about Kabuki as well. He's from Singapore, but isn't aren't Kabuki's supposed to be from Japan? So this is a little confusing. But Charlie Brown is my favorite guy this whole night. Uh, Ric Flair is great, yeah, but I I just thought that Charlie Brown was a little bit more entertaining. In Kabuki, he's just kind of a badass too. He's uh, intimidating with his uh, mask. Um, uh, his kabuki mask um, that he has with his robes and he spits green mist like what 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 is this green mist supposed to do i i know that we've seen great muda do it if you're familiar with him but kabuki but he doesn't use it as a weapon but it's it's pretty intimidating if if you're across the squared circle from a guy and he's spitting green mist watch out and so in this in this match um, there's, this is a very smart match being wrestled by, uh, Charlie Brown and the great Kabuki. Uh, at one point though, Charlie Brown goes to the outside and he goes for a chair. Um, he's very lucky. He isn't disqualified from the official. Um, but it gets, it gets, it gets pretty, uh, rough and tumble on the outside. And so Charlie Brown, uh, 
uh, he racks Kabuki's crotch into the posts. So straight up lawlessness in this match. But um, other other than the questionable near DQs, uh, there is great officiating. Uh, the official always keeping an eye on Gary Hart, uh, especially considering what Gary Hart did earlier in the match, uh, nearly killing a guy. So, of course, we can't trust him. But later on in the match, as the match gets going, Kabuki and Charlie Brown, they, they both start going for holds that will knock the other out of consciousness, like the sleeper hold, uh, which Gordon Sully said originated from Orient. I did not know that. Thanks a ton, Gordon Sully. It is Kabuki utilizing that Oriental claw very effectively, and uh, we may be seeing the unmasking of this man, Charlie Brown, because Kabuki seems to have things set extremely well. The referee checking those shoulders. Brown gets that left shoulder off the mat. He's got it off the mat and he is retaining consciousness. That's the key to this entire situation. He is maintaining his consciousness. He's trying to get back to his feet. So I'm shocked that the great Kabuki doesn't completely annihilate Charlie Brown. Like he's so menacing and Charlie Brown's this dork in a mask really. And he just kind of puts up with his bullcrap entirely too much. But Kabuki later on the match gets some control and he puts on the punishment with the claw hold. And so Charlie Brown is down and he and he's suffering, but Kabuki stops the claw. Why would you stop an effective move? He could have kept with it and Charlie Brown could have tapped out. It's really unfortunate that the Kabuki uh, didn't keep it on and win the match. Uh, he's hanging on by sheer intestinal fortitude. And I'll tell you what. Yeah. Yeah, the crowd's bringing him back. There's no question about it. That adrenaline is flowing again. And down, down, Charlie Brown has got it going his way. Gordon, when you talk about conditioning and you're talking about being able to take punishment, look at this man here coming back after what he's been through. Three! Charlie Brown wins from an elbow drop. I'm just as stunned as Gary Hart. Gary Hart has no idea what's happening. But one thing I got a little confused about at the end of this match, the announced team just confused me with. So Gary Hart doesn't get paid now? And Charlie Brown doesn't get the title? I thought this was a mask versus title match. So it's either Sully and Cottle Blewett, or the official or or the promotion got this wrong it's very confusing and i'm not quite sure who has the title now thanks a lot guys fans not too long ago these two men right here dick slater and bob orton jr collected twenty-five thousand dollars from world champion harley race a bounty on rick flair and of course it put flair in the hospital put him out for a time but bobby's here for starcade 83 
Ric Flair did come back. And I'll tell you something, it wasn't without the help of one Wahoo McDaniels. Now, Harley Race has been the world heavyweight champion seven times. He paid us the 25 grand. We collected it. If it wasn't for McDaniels, we'd have got Flair and put him back in the hospital again. But the cold hard fact of the matter is, Flair does have his match. But like I just said, seven-time world champion, Harley Race, with the information he's gathered from men like Dick Slater and myself, I feel like he will have no more trouble <laughs> beating Ric Flair than we just did Wahoo McDaniels. I think we turned his arm into mush sticky. Let me say this straight to you, Ric Flair. I know you're watching, just like I watched a few minutes ago when the camera was in the other dressing room. I'm with the two people that probably know you better than you know yourself. This right now, this picture of the three You'll remember when I hit that ring. You'll remember when we spiked your head and a pile driver into that canvas. And I'm coming for that neck, buddy. That's my whole ball game all night long is your neck and the elimination of Ric Flair. So now we have a backstage interview with Orton and Slater along with Harley Race. And one thing I didn't know that was really shocking to me that Orton and Slater got 25K to put Flair in the hospital. Wow. These men would just do anything to get an advantage on their opponent. Where they, where they don't even have to put up the title, really. I mean, if, if Flair's in the hospital, there's no match. And to me, I mean, we all know that Harley Race is a badass. He would kick any of our asses but to me that is not a fighting champion but Harley Race even though he's not a fighting champion he's still a badass ladies and gentlemen our next event of the evening is a very special match this is a collar match both of these wrestlers will be chained to each other around the necks throughout the duration of this event. This event has no disqualification and no time limit to a finish. Introducing first, in the corner to my left, from Scotland, weighing in at 242 pounds, Roddy, Roddy Piper. And now, from Seattle, Washington, weighing in at 240 pounds, the United States heavyweight champion, the man with the bionic elbow, Greg Valentine. So after another attempt to interview Dusty Rhodes goes right, nothing messes up uh, audio-wise, we get Roddy Piper versus Greg Valentine in a dog collar match. This is not for a title, but this match is hailed as a classic. And so, in Cottle, he says that this may be the most dangerous match. So, this has some competition going for it with the uh, Abdul the Butcher and Carlos Colon match. And so, but what's different about this match? Well, these guys are connected together with dog collars around the neck. And Roddy Piper already, at this point, he he are his his ear. One of his ears is already jacked up. 
but he's crazy enough to just want to go for this match. So this match is really, really dangerous. And Jim Crockett, he didn't want to part in this, but Piper kept on him and kept bugging him apparently about having the match. And then Crockett finally relented. There should have been a, a hold harmless agreement here. Maybe there was in the background. I don't know, but is, is, is Piper smart? Or foolish for taking on this match. I mean, it's great that he wants to take on all challengers, but this is his hearing that he might be losing for this match. And so, so at the beginning of this match, there's a tug of war game where Greg Valentine and Rowdy Piper are using their necks to try to gain a leverage advantage. So it it takes ten minutes into the match to even get a pin. This match is absolutely brutal. Roddy Piper, he's wrapping his fist with the chain and just going to town on Greg Valentine. This is brutal. And overall, it's a really, really good match. Now it's Piper with the chain around the throat of Allen. In the mouth! Valentine now beginning to field. The uh, opposite kind of pressure here. He had it his own way for a while, but now... Piper repaying him in kind. Wrapped around the nose and wrapped around the mouth. And Piper hits him with a fist right on the chain while it's around the face. In the middle of the match, even Valentine was, was using holds against Piper, but he'd be using the chain to go around Piper's head and blocking Piper's view with the chain. And so, but later on, Piper, he would get him back with another hold but with the chain wrapped around valentine's mouth and there's another part too where piper wrapped the chain around the post locking valentine into the corner and pulling on the chain making valentine go backwards towards the pole using that leverage almost like a lever of some sort uh the match spills out to the outside piper and valentine uh just they're just bonkers out here. Piper throws a chair at Valentine's head. Good thing that there's, uh, it seems like, I think just just built into the match a no DQ clause here. But on the outside, Valentine opened up Piper's ear. So he's bleeding from the ear. And that seems to affect Piper's balance and with possible hearing loss. This is just the stuff that, I was worried about for Piper. I mean, if, if we if you know anything about Piper's career, he goes on to have a great, great, great career, but it could have gone sideways at this moment. And so Valentine has Piper where he wants him, gets a series of one counts, uh, but that must have been discouraging to him. I mean, Piper, he, he's losing his balance, uh, apparently, but he's kicking out of everything that Valentine gives him. Once again, Greg Valentine seems to have it all his own way. Valentine down with the elbow across the chest. Valentine back to his feet once again. Valentine seems to hold uh, the advantage posture here. Valentine up on that second rope. Piper just pulled him off. He grabbed him by, grabbed the chain, and jerked Valentine out of the pole. And now he's got the chain just whipping him with it. He got the pin. Roddy Piper did it. Roddy Piper did it. He got the pinball. Roddy Piper, who lost that title to Greg Valentine, has regained the title. And so, 
Roddy Piper is now once again the United States heavyweight wrestling champion being carried out of the ring. A tremendous crowd of over 16,000. So Roddy Piper has gained his revenge, no question about it. His title not on the line. I am incorrect in my statement. The title not on the line, but Roddy Piper gained his revenge by a victory. But now Greg Valentine is certainly uh, exacting his toll and catches referee Stu Schwartz. So now the end of the match wasn't pretty, but Piper proved to be the smarter wrestler. And so Piper gets Valentine down, but he uses the chain around uh, Valentine's legs to get leverage in the pinfall. So the thing is here, of course, Valentine is mad, just like every other person that <laughs> that gets pinned in this in this paper pay per view. Uh, they attack. He attacks Piper in the end, and but that so the title doesn't change hands. But apparently, Valentine's pride is hurt as as he should. Uh, he lost the match, um, and he he's mad, of course. But should the title been on the line with the match of this match? I think it should have. Because why should Piper have to, to win another match after such a grueling, brutal match? Gordon says, Gordon Soley, he says that Piper has the moral and psychological victory. And to me, is there any worth in that? Especially after you have your, you had your ear ripped open. I don't think so personally, and I think... Piper should have won the title with this match. Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a tag team match for the world's tag team championship. One fall, no time limit. The belt can change hands on a disqualification. Special referee for this event, wrestling great Angelo Mosca. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the challengers. First, from Mascalera, New Mexico, weighing in at 226 pounds, Jay Youngblood. And his team partner from Honolulu, Hawaii, weighing in at 233 pounds, Ricky Steamboat. And now, the world's tag team champions, from Stillwater, Oklahoma, with a combined wrestling weight of 467 pounds, Jack and Jerry Briscoe. So now we get to the tag team title match with Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood versus Jack and Jerry Briscoe. So one thing to note is that Angelo Mosca is the official of this match. We've seen him twice before already in the bleeding arm. Should he really be out here officiating? Just a thought. So Ricky Steamboat, we all know that he is a legend. So was, was being on this tag team the right idea? I mean, I guess you have to start somewhere, right? I don't know. And so the reason why this match is happening is that the Briscoe said they didn't want to be a part of Starcade 83. So they wanted to uh, just kind of pick and choose who their opponents would be. So they tried dodging. I guess they wanted a match in Missouri. But Jim Crockett, um, in his infinite wisdom, uh, he bought their match's contract 
and made sure that he was going that that they the Briscoes were going to wrestle Steamboat in Youngblood. Uh, so I think they were trying to dodge the young talent here, and I think they knew they were in trouble. And so the thing about the Briscoes, they're brothers, and they both come from Oklahoma State as wrestlers. And like I said, like I said about the older experience, these guys they look like they're maybe about in their forties, but they're 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 looking pretty good. Uh, so they've got the old man strength going for them. On the other side, Steamboat, he is pretty much he's a specimen. He's the best looking wrestler in this whole. Uh, pay-per-view he's got everything uh, he's got strength he's got muscles he's got speed he's got agility he's got the te technical aspect he's one of the greats and if you don't know him I suggest you uh, check out this match and any other match that he's in well and Steamboat ran right into that foot as he came charging in and he got that foot to the midsection out of the knee. We're going to get a tag and another switch. It's going to be Jack Briscoe, but they always take that double team. If it gets in here, that corner, and after the tag, they're at least going to get one good blow at you with a double team. Well, they do have that market advantage, the fact that they have been uh, wrestling together uh, all of their lives. Uh, Jack Briscoe, uh, just two years ahead of his brother Jerry in uh, high school and in college. By the way, they were both four lettermen in high school and went on to Oklahoma State University uh, with wrestling scholarships. But uh, they, have, they are indeed a tremendous tag team combination. Another thing to think about when you're watching this match is that at this point in 1983, Ricky Steamboat was really the future of wrestling. I mean, he could be wrestling today. If he was in a time travel, uh, travel machine and came to uh, 2018 and, and wrestled at WrestleMania, he would fit right in. To me, really, this match signifies the old versus the new guard of wrestlers. You've got the you got the Briscoes who are old school, super old school. That then I've gushed about Ricky Steamboat. Uh, that they are the new school. They're more high flying, more impactful. Jay Youngblood, he's okay. That's how I feel about about Jay Youngblood. He's just all right to me. But. Uh, the match is going. There's some quick tags for Youngblood and Steamboat really putting on the, the, the Briscoes. But then I feel like the match turns when Jack Briscoe lays on a brutal stun gun on Jay Youngblood. And so another thing, too, Jerry Briscoe, uh, he, he has a very, a very nice bridge when pinning uh, Youngblood. And so I think it was one of the best pins of the night other than Piper's uh, chain pin to win the match. And so one of the greatest parts of this match is when Steamboat, he lifts Jack Briscoe from the art, from a arm scissor position up to slam him down. To me, that was the most impressive move of the night. Utilizing the very, very same strategy that the Briscoe brothers utilize, only doing it, I think. In this case, the students have become the teachers because they seem to have it going for them. He got it, and it's a well-deserved victory. To me, the tide turned when um, Angelo got pushed by one of the Briscoes. That's when the match unraveled for them. And so Youngblood and Steamboat won using tag team tactics. Uh, 
and they won the title. But again, after almost every match on this pay-per-view, there's some sort of post-match shenanigans that has to happen after the match. And Angelo, poor Angelo Mosca, he's been in two out of three of these these post-match shenanigans. I really hope he gets some extra payment here for his trouble for getting stabbed in the arm and then having to deal with this. But all things considered, Ricky Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, new tag team champions. Fans, you see the man, nature boy Ric Flair. He is in the best mental and physical condition of his life. The biggest night of his life is just about ready to happen. The number one contender for the World's Heavyweight Championship. Time is almost his. We are just moments away from a flair for the gold, the World's Heavyweight Championship match between this man, Ric Flair, and Harley Race. It is also a very happy dressing room at this time, fans, as we are here with the new NWA TV champion, Charlie Brown from out of town. I feel good, Rocky McKeel. I love it, Daddy. We're going to do it. First of all, I want to tell all my people, all my brothers and sisters, I did it for you. This belt goes back to the people. Secondly, I did it for Jimmy the Boogeyman Valiant. And third, for Charlie Brown of out of town. Woo! We did it. Stock it. So this interview is really about Ric Flair's preparations for the next match, the main event, the whole reason why this Starcade, the Flair for the Gold, is here. But going back to Charlie Brown's title, apparently he does get the title. I have no idea what's happening. Someone messed up. Charlie Brown has the title, but I think he kind of deserves it, don't you? I think he does. Introducing first, ladies and gentlemen, the challenger and former world's heavyweight champion from Charlotte, North Carolina, weighing in at 240 pounds, ladies and gentlemen, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. His opponent, the world's heavyweight champion from Kansas City, Missouri, Weighing in at 255 pounds, Harley Race. All right. The match we've been waiting for, Ric Flair versus Harley Race, in a cage match for the World Championship. There will be no distractions, no interruptions. This is just going to be two men fighting their hearts out. So Gene Kaniski is a special referee. For the match and he'll he's a he's a non-factor but here's something i want to talk about all night rick flair has been seen as a hero for this night he's a hero but if you're familiar with him he's a womanizer he drinks a lot he's a cheat what happened along the way he's going for his third or fourth title to, uh, this night does the success go to his head I don't know, but let's just let's just take in this pay-per-view for what it is because this is a really, really great match. This is probably a better match than Kabuki versus Charlie Brown. You know, I found that a little bit more entertaining, but this match was great. And so two things that Sully says is gonna hap- uh, going to matter the most, intensity and execution. And we'll talk about that a little bit later because it does come into play a little bit. 
And one thing that we find out from this match, too, is that Harley Race said it was demeaning for him to wrestle inside of a cage. So to me, this should be a boon for him. This dude is tough. In my mind, a steel cage is where he should want Ric Flair to be. Why is he thinking like this? I don't know. Maybe he feels like he's too good, but I think this match suits him. So the match goes on. And to me, it seems like this is just an ordinary match, just uh, uh, a case running it. Because Kaminsky, he, he, uh, he's telling Race to step away from Flair when there's a rope break. But Race is having attitude with Kaminsky. And so I don't think this is smart. Um, you know, the re- he can hold it against Race uh, later on in the match. But during during the beginning of the match, Ric Flair does a great job keeping on the mat with holds on Race. And so um, there's a lot of countering going on. Ric Flair is prepared for Race's elbow drops and gets out of the way. And Race also counters some of Flair's m- moves. These guys, they, they talk about how they're training and how they're preparing for the match, uh, buying people to hospitalize the other person. They're prepared, both of these guys. Um, but soon someone has to break. Um, you know, even though Race is failing to execute, uh, just like Sully said, you know, it's all about intensity and execution. But at first in the match, Race has a hard time with this. It's a great match. Things are going back and forth. Right down to the back of the neck with a rabbit punch. And that may have been on the ear as Flair seems to be holding his ear at this point while he's on the mat. Well, obviously, Race is going to pull out all stops. We heard an explanation from the challenger, Rick Flair, and uh, that may have given uh, the additional intensity that Race may need. Uh, he knew he hurt his man. And it'll be curious now to see how uh, quickly and how fast he closes in on the challenger because the challenger is in trouble. No question about it, Flair in trouble. So eventually Race gets control of the match and at one point Race punches Flair with a rabbit punch to the back of the head. This is dirty and this is the kind of move that Race really benefits from. And so, but one thing we're getting back to, intensity and execution. Even later on, Race has a hard time with this. So he has a legendary pile driver but when he tries to execute it on flair he leans too far back and he's not able to have flair's head hit the mat and it's still somewhat effective but to me i don't know if it's uh he's tired from all the energy he's exerted but this is pretty lackadaisical and he only gets a two count out of it uh but then again race's headbutts they're legendary too and every single time he executes a headbutt, this is the move that really works for him. And it's a weapon you don't want being used against you. Uh, and at a certain point, Race busts open Flair by throwing him into a cage, which Sully says is a crimson mask. And that's what exactly what it is. Uh, but Flair, he turns the match around um, with an Irish rip reversal and throws Race into the post. It opens up race. Not as bad as race opened up Flair, but he's still opened up. And so to me in this match, it's not so much about intensity, uh, like Sully said, but it's stamina. Stamina in execution. These cage matches are nothing to mess with. So you need to put in the work and the training to be able to take it to the limit in these matches. So the cage in this match, 
it's constantly been a factor and so is race's headbutts but flair is hanging in there he's got a lot he's got the figure four it's a question now harley race can settle for one of two things a broken leg or a broken ankle and flair is putting it to him race oh i've got to hand it to race Anybody he's else would have conceded by now. He's trying to turn into the mat, and if he can turn Flair over, he can come out of it. Very, very seldom you'll ever see a man with the strength and the ability to do that. Almost had Flair turned. He has reversed it. He has reversed the figure four, but Flair brings it back. Flair brought it back, but uh, they're into the ropes. Flair, he manages to lock on his legendary figure four leg, leg lock, but race... He reverses it and gets to the rope. And this is not a no DQ match. So once he gets to the rope, Flair has to break the hold. And this gives Race an opportunity to just tee off on Flair, just punching him over and over and over. And Flair's hair is just stained red. And like I said, it's not a no DQ match. So if, if Race is on flair and he needs to get backed up race needs to back up comiskey is giving an account and so another great moment in this pay-per-view comiskey grabs race's hair and pulls him off rick flair so like i said race race he's he's pushing the envelope with comiskey and finally it bites him in the ass and so, and I'm just personally shocked that uh, Race didn't retaliate. Uh, his face uh, absolutely covered in... Uh, uh -uh. Down goes the referee. I think you're right, Gordon. And I think he could be. Race caught him with a knee right into the midsection. Now back to the corner. You got him cornered and he's going to fight his way out. Flair, the referee uh, still looping down right on his hand. knees. And the referee in trouble right now. Here's Flair up on the top rope. One, He's got him down. One, two, two three. three. He did it. He did it. Rick Flair has done it. No question about it. Rick Flair has just defeated seven times world heavyweight champion Harley Race. And there you see it, and I'm not even sure that Flair is even aware. Yes, he is. You can tell now. He realizes it. His goal has been reached. His great achievement in life in winning the World Heavyweight Championship for a third time. And you can see the crowd and how excited and pleased they are. Rick Flair, clearly the odds-on favorite by the fans, uh, has done what many people consider to be impossible. So in the last moments of the match, uh, Kaniski, he goes down, but when he's when he goes down, Flair goes to the top of the top rope, and he does a high cross body against Race, and so Race and Flair they they topple over Kaniski's body, and but Kaniski still has enough uh, mindfulness of what's going on that he hits the one two three pin, and Flair wins the gold. So it's almost as if, you know, Flair for the gold, you, you, you get the feeling that, you know, yeah, he might win. He was the crowd favorite of the night, 
But he gets the, the, the title fair and square, and there's no shenanigans at the end of this match, even though it's clear that Race wanted to. But Kaniski does a great job of coming between him and Flair and um, the, the, the locker room coming out to congratulate Flair. It's so... Uh, all night, Rhodes, Dusty Rhodes. We're going to bring up Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes has been talking all night long about how he is going to get the winner. So this sets up Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. And if you're any kind of historian, you're going to know that these guys had some legendary matches. We're going to talk about those matches further on. And so this has been the first episode of our greatest sport, professional wrestling. My name is Matthew Nanes, and we'll see you next time.